As we continue in this Advent season, we gather to give thanks for God's gracious gift. God in flesh comes as the image of the Invisible Father. Israel's waiting for the Promised One is not a time to celebrate, but a time of sorrow and mourning. Rebellion has led to exile, captivity, oppression, and pain. But God has promised that the day is coming when his people will sing and dance, for the coming of God will be joy for the people in the whole world. On this second Sunday of Advent, we light this candle in a spirit of joy because we know that God's presence is a reason to celebrate who he is and the fulfillment of all he has done through the birth of his son. Dear God, on this second Sunday of Advent, let this light shine brightly as the days grow shorter, so that we will be ready for your face to shine upon us at Christmas. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen. That is why we are here, to worship Christ 
who has come among us. So glad that you are here, joining us here in the sanctuary, also those joining on our streaming. And uh, we pray that uh, you will sense God's spirit as we worship together. Take a moment, share a word of peace, or a greeting with others here in worship today. a couple things to uh, bring to your attention. There's an insert in your bulletin about family night this Wednesday. We're going to be going caroling to a variety of homes in the area. Uh, It should be a a fun night together of uh, encouraging some folks as well as uh, having hot chocolate and cookies. And uh, you may want, obviously want to dress warm, bring a flashlight. I think I've also heard rumors about glow sticks. So, I mean, that'll be fun uh, in and of itself having those. So, we, uh, we hope you'll join us Wednesday. We'll meet here at 6.15 and probably finish up around 7.30, 7.45 uh, on Wednesday night. Also, this today we're collecting our jars for the Matthew 8.20 initiative. And if you brought your jar, there are baskets, there's a basket here, a couple in the back. Just dump your, uh, your money into that and then take the jar back with you and make sure you pick up a, another booklet. We're going to do this one more quarter. So we have uh, 12 more weeks, another booklet that's on the table in the back. Make sure you pick that up. If you didn't bring your jar today, you can drop it, bring it next week, or if you're at the church, drop it off at the office, and we'll make sure it gets into the right place. Thank you so much for the support that you are giving, and as we are continually raising awareness of the needs of so many people in our world.
The Old Testament scripture reading this morning is chapter 11 of Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or judge or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nation will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamathon, from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west, and together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings, please stand for the singing of the doxology. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, help us to give graciously, not with a spirit of obligation, but a spirit of gratitude and a recognition of all you've blessed us with. Help all that we give to be used to further your kingdom. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.
you join me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin? Let us pray together. Merciful God, how many prophets of your light have we ignored because they were not what we were looking for? How many times have we ignored voices crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord? How many times have we breathed a sigh of relief and turned our backs on your messengers because they did not speak the message we expected to hear? Help us hear anew the cry of those who would lead us to Christ. Tune our ears to your heralds that we might also testify to your light. And through the coming of Christ, may we hear your words of pardon and assurance. If we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. As we continue in the spirit of prayer, if you would like to come to the altar rail to offer your prayers, please join me. Father, on this second Sunday of Advent, we come to you acknowledging our need for you and asking that you would help us as we prepare once again for the coming of Christ. We thank you that you are at work in our world through Christ. And so we bring to you the burdens and the concerns and the struggles of our lives in this world. Pray today, Father, for those who are grieving. Think especially of Lance Weaver's family. Ask that you would bring comfort and peace to them and to all who are feeling grief today. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for Daryl Stevenson, Carol Stonemetz, Ben King, David Hartley, Mildred Berry, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Laurel Buker. Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others. We ask for your healing grace upon each of them. We pray, Father, for uh, the ministry of the church, and we thank you for the ways that you speak into our lives through the church. And we pray for churches around us who are also worshiping you today and, and uh, are presence for you in their world. We think of the Brookside Wesleyan Church in Wellsville and Pastor Robin George. Pour out the abundance of your blessing upon them, that they would be bonded together in your love so that they would be a witness of your love to their community and beyond. Father, we pray for our nation. We thank you that you are at work in our nation. We pray that you would bring healing, unity, in all the ways in which we are divided from one another, in conflict with each other. We pray for our world. 
We pray your grace upon all who are refugees. We ask that you would, you would work so miraculously that the war or the, the threats, or the attacks would be taken away so that they can return to their homes in safety. We pray, Father, that you would protect them where they are and that you would help them to know your presence in a very powerful way. We pray for uh, our brothers and sisters who face persecution and opposition, and we pray for the church in East Africa. And thank you for these cousins who have come to faith in Christ through difficult circumstances and continue in difficult circumstances. Give them hope. Give them grace. May they be a witness to their family and beyond. We thank you for the work of your church in the world. As Wycliffe Bible Translators is on the cusp of their 75th anniversary, we want to thank you for this this, uh, organization that has uh, put the scriptures into the vernacular of so many people around the world. There is much to be done, and we pray that this next year will be a a powerful time of expanding and growing and to reach the place where every person can hear and read your word in their heart language. We ask, Father, that you would bless those that are connected to us as they work in this ministry. Continue to encourage them and bless their efforts. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you that for Christ who has come into this world and has changed everything. Be glorified as we worship him, as we welcome him, as we live in lives open to him. And we pray this through Jesus, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking, how we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting, welcome holy child, welcome holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger. How I wish we would have known, but long-awaited, holy stranger, make yourself at home, please make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Did our hungry souls be filled? Word now breaking, heaven's silence, welcome to our 
Fragile fingers sent to heal us, tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us, unto us is born, unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our side, rub our sin and make us holy, perfect Son of God, perfect Son of God, welcome to Please stand for the gospel reading. Following the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for Children's Church. The Old Testament scripture reading, I'm sorry, the New Testament scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. You probably have a favorite Christmas carol or a Christmas song. It might be uh, a religious song. It might be uh, a secular song that we sing about the holidays, something that brings joy to your heart or a sense of, uh, of happiness about this time of year. Maybe it's a sentimental song. Maybe it's, it's something that tugs at your heartstrings. It's one of those kinds of songs that, uh, that I think has become one of my favorites Something that uh, David Foster and uh, Linda Thompson Jenner wrote more than 20 years ago, probably more like 30 years ago. And a number of artists have recorded it, though probably, I suspect, Amy Grant's recording might be the most popular. And, um, but it's, it's a song that just grabbed me the first time I heard it and has continued to since. And um, it, it goes like this. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee, I wrote to you of childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now, I still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart. The wars would never start. And time would heal all hearts. And everyone would have a friend. And right would always win, and love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. The words of that song, I think, echo in the heart of all of us. Now, you might, you might not agree with the whole you know, sending letters to Santa thing. But there is something beautiful, something in our hearts about a world in which no more lives are torn apart. A world where wars don't start, a world where hearts are healed. A world of love compassion. And I think that's in somewhere in the heart of every single person. Because God put it there. God didn't create us to, uh, to live in conflict with each other. God didn't create us to start wars. God didn't create us to hurt one another. God didn't create us to, to live in loneliness God created us to flourish. It is when sin entered the world that all that God had created began to 
to be twisted and turned and skewed and hurt and pain and conflict. All of that came into existence because we sinned. And ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, we have been trying to to remedy that. We have been working over and over and over again to try to find an answer to that. And we keep failing. And God knows that. That's why Jesus comes. And what I find fascinating about the prophecies is that it creates an image of a world of what happens when Jesus comes. And Isaiah 11 is one of those images. It's an image of that day. It's an image when God brings, ushers in his kingdom in all of his fullness. It's a day when when everything is put to right, that day when Jesus will reappear. And on that day, there will be restoration. All the things that, all the hurt and the pain and the struggles, there will be, will be restored. And I love the image that Isaiah paints for us here. He talks about what's going to happen with creation. And how animals, who we call natural enemies, are going to be friends. Lions, lamb, existing together in peace. Children playing at the nests of, of cobras and not being hurt. All of, of creation restored. It surprises me when I start, when I think about it, that the first thing Isaiah says, the first image he gives us of, restore, of the restoration of, of that, on that day is creation. I would have thought it would be human beings. I think there's something significant about starting with creation. I think it tells us that, that we are not the only thing, the only beings that God cares about and loves. God loves all that he has created. Every single part of God's creation, he loves and he is going to restore it. And it says something to us about our image of what, the, what that day and what that life in that day is going to be like. Because we've had a tendency to think of it as sort of something out there. But Isaiah paints a picture of something right here. New heaven, new earth, restored. Restored to what God intended from the very beginning. And, in, and creation will be restored. And I wonder if it isn't that if creation isn't mentioned first, because until creation is made right, it seems impossible that anything else could be made right. To think that human beings might live in right relationship with each other, but all of creation's in chaos, doesn't feel like that's going to work. But once creation is restored and peace has come to creation, then we have a place of safety and security and peace for human beings to live. But he goes on, he talks about in verse 10, about how the nations will come to God's glorious land. He, talks, he says that, that there will be a, a banner. This heir of David's throne will be a banner to all the nations and they will all come to him. And that word banner sometimes is translated signal. And I have in my mind this big neon sign saying, y'all come. You're welcome. I love you. I want you. you know, it, 
Sometimes I think we, have a, we get so wrapped up in thinking about who's in and who's out. And making those judgments about people. We forget God wants everyone to come to him. God wants all people to come to him. He created every person to know him and to be known by him and to find joy and peace and life in him. And this is an invitation to every person, every nation. Not everyone's going to accept it. Some people are going to reject it, but it's not because God doesn't want it. I think it reminds us that just as how God feels about creation ought to say something to us about how we treat creation, so the invitation to all the nations ought to say something to us about how we view people in other cultures, people who see things differently than we do. I I often get convicted, and I know that I'm not in the right place toward other people, when I have a hard time believing that that person could teach me anything. And sometimes we do that about people who have differences of opinions. Sometimes it's about people of different nations, maybe different races, whatever the case may be, all the ways in which we divide ourselves. We know that we are not seeing people the way God does when we have come to the conclusion that that person could not possibly teach us anything. Because the subtle underlying assumption is, I'm better than they are. I'm more valuable than they are. I'm more important than they are. And that is not how God sees the world. God loves all people. He wants all people to come to him. And Jesus is the banner, the beacon, the signal to say, come. And then he finally gets to God's people. And he talks about how Israel and Judah are going to be reunited. They went through a civil war and, and uh, became enemies of one another. And eventually, a couple hundred years later, the Assyrians sack Israel and, and Samaria. And, and their, the Assyrian way of... of keeping their hold on the nations they conquered, was to displace about two-thirds of the people to all kinds of other nations where they had conquered and bringing in people from all those other nations and planting them into the nation, to that nation they had conquered. And so you had the nation of Israel that was maybe a third Jewish and two-thirds all kinds of other things, and they intermarried with each other, and they became, uh, they became a, a mixed race. And to the Jews in Judah, that was unacceptable. And so you come then to the New Testament and that northern kingdom of a mixed race are the Samaritans that the New Testament talks about. And those are the people that the Jews walk miles out of their waist so they don't go through that part of the country. And they hate each other. And it might be the greatest miracle in this whole thing that those two nations are now reconciled. Those two people now love each other and care for each other and are brought together. And I think about the ways in which we as a church are more, maybe sometimes more interested in what divides us than in Jesus who unites us. Whatever those things may be, Republican, Democrat, Calvinist, Arminian. Pick all the different ways in which the church, divide. we divide ourselves and we judge each other and we think... uh, 
you know, we think less of other people. Well, the day is coming when all of that will disappear because our focus won't be on us, it'll be on Jesus. And when your focus is on Jesus, you can't help but see people as equals and people to be loved. You see people the way Jesus does. It's the kingdom. It seems to me, as we talked last week, that this image of the kingdom to come is an image that we want to embrace as much as we can now. We are called to be agents of the kingdom. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom and God's will is this picture that Isaiah paints for us here. And if that is what it's going to be then, then it seems to me that our calling is to try and do as much as we can to make that in this world now. But keep in mind that all of this that happens in that day happens only because of what he says in verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 and following take place because of what takes place in verses 1 to 5. And in verses 1 to 5 he says, A shoot, a branch, out of the root, the stump of Jesse is going to come forth. And he's the one who's going to make all this happen. He is the one that's going to make all this possible. The, the messenger of God, the Messiah, Jesus. And he says, this one who will come will do this because the Spirit of God rests on him. Not temporarily, not for a few days, not for a few moments, not a few circumstances, but his life will be defined by the Spirit. Every part of his being is filled with the Spirit. Every decision is of the Spirit. Every thought is of the Spirit. Every attitude is of the Spirit. And so he comes in the image of God, or as John tells us, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. This is how all this happens. The Spirit rests on him. And because the Spirit rests on him, he has wisdom and counsel and strength and might to carry out the purposes and the plans, the will of God. One of the things I love about this, what he's, how he describes him is verse 3. And he says here that he, de- he will delight in obedience. I don't think we typically delight in obedience. In fact, I think we tend to think of obedience as a negative word, not a positive word. We have to, we have to teach our children to obey. Because it's not something we want to naturally do. I think we often look at obedience as giving up something that we feel is inherently good in order to do something that, quite frankly, we think is inherently bad. We like what we're doing. I want to keep doing this. I don't want to stop doing this. This is good. This feels good. This looks good. I like this. And I know that ultimately it may lead to destruction, but I'll live with that. And the reason God, God sends the law to Israel, the reason he, he challenges us about how we live, is because without obeying him, we are leading to a life of destruction and death. And God's created design for us is a life that leads to life and flourishing. And everything that God asks his people to do through history and today 
is to lead us from death to life, from destruction to flourishing. And that's why this one to come delights in obedience because he knows who God is. He understands the nature, the character of who God is. And if God asks him to do this, it's because it's in the best interest of him and all of the purposes of God. But until we really believe that God is good and loving and merciful and compassionate, until we believe that God has created us and, is, and, and wants nothing but our best interest, obedience will never be delight. We'll fight and wrestle and struggle continually, just like we do with so many things. It is understanding who God is that makes the difference. And this God is a God of justice and righteousness. Going on from verse 3, he talks about how, how this one to come will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will, he will give justice to the poor. He will not judge by appearance or make a decision based on hearsay. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Justice and righteousness are in essence the DNA of this one to come because it's the DNA of God. I think when we, t- we think about justice and righteousness, we tend to see them as opposite sides of the same coin. We, we see, we think of justice and in terms of the, the social interactions and the, and the way the world operates. And we see righteousness more as the spiritual dimension of the world. And often we treat them as if they are separate. Maybe like a, a circle with a, a line down the middle on one side is righteousness and the other side is justice. And some people are really into justice and some people are really into righteousness and, and we, we even sometimes have arguments about which is more important in the kingdom of God. But I think it, the problem lies with our image of justice and righteousness. I don't think they're things that we separate. I think it's a lot like making a cake. Now, I don't make a lot of cakes. I could. I can read a box just like anybody else can. But, you know, you make a cake from scratch and that's a different thing. When you make a cake from scratch, you have wet ingredients and dry ingredients. And, and it's as if what we're saying is that we're going to get a pan and we're going to put a, a piece of, of material, foil or something down the middle. And on one side, we're going to put the dry ingredients and the other side, the wet ingredients. And then we're going to put that in the oven. I got to be honest with you. That's not a cake I want to eat. I, I don't really want to, to eat that kind of a cake. That's not what we do anyway, is it? We take the wet and dry ingredients and we dump them in a bowl and we mix them up. And we stir them and mix them until you can't really tell the difference between what's wet and what's dry. And then we take that and we pour it into the pan and we put that in the oven and that's a cake we want to eat. And I think when we talk about the justice and the righteousness of God... We're really talking about the nature and the character of God that is all one. For God to act in justice is for him to act in righteousness. For God to act in righteousness is for him to act in justice. And we can say the same thing about all the other things that we call paradoxes. Grace and truth. 
love and wrath. I mean, all of these things are, are they're all mixed as one in the character of God. And that means when God acts in justice, he is acting righteously. And when God acts righteously, he is acting for justice. And when God acts in grace, he is acting in truth. And when God acts in truth, he is acting in grace. It is all one in the nature and the character of God. And I think that's what God wants for us. That when the Spirit fills us, we just simply respond with a righteous justice. And a righteousness that is just. And so we care about every part of of every person's being. We care about the social structures of the world because we care about people and we see how they are harming and hurting the world. And we introduce people to Jesus so their lives are changed. And all of it is one together. That's the kingdom. And when we talk about justice and righteousness... It doesn't mean that we're ignoring evil. In fact, no one takes evil more seriously than God does. And that's why in this passage, as well as many, many others, we see the judgment of God on Israel, Judah, other nations. Because God understands more than any of us could possibly begin to understand the damage that evil does to us, individually and socially. The hurt, the pain... The agony, the the trouble, all of that is because of evil. And God acts righteously for justice as a response to evil. And he is calling us to do the same thing. We people are so filled with the spirit of Jesus that we, we cannot take evil lightly. What intrigues me about this whole chapter is that all this happens because of a little shoot. A little plant that comes up out of the ground. You know, nothing nothing exciting, nothing extraordinary. Maybe the fact that it comes out of a stump. But you know, if it were me, if I were planting this thing, I think I would want to make the biggest impression I could. I think I would want, if you're talking about trees instead of a little shoot, I want to find the biggest tree I possibly could so that people would stand back and say, wow, awesome. Now that's something to pay attention to. That's something that gets our attention. That's awe-inspiring. Not a little shoot. I mean, none of us... None of us plan our vacations to go to the the Green Shoot National Park somewhere, do we? Right? I mean, nobody does that. But we drive miles out of our way and we plan vacations to go to Sequoia National Park and the Redwoods National Park. We want to go see trees like this because they're impressive and powerful. And yet here is God Restoring creation through a little shoot. It seems to be the way God loves to work. I mean, the whole Christmas story is completely unexpected. Who would have guessed that when God's going to 
to change the world, he does it with a little baby. And he does it with a little baby born to the most common parents in the world. And and he does it in such a way that the mother of that baby looks to everyone else as if she looks to everyone else as she is a woman who is pregnant and not married. And the shame of that in that culture, in that time. And that and that she and that this couple is takes their has their baby in this little out-of-the-way place of Bethlehem, and the, probably the only witnesses to this birth are animals. And when God says, well, we need to tell somebody about this, so let's find the best people we can tell. And they find shepherds who are outcasts. Nobody listens to shepherds. And who would have guessed that the visitors... Pagan astrologers from the east come. And they're more interested in this baby than the men who know all the prophecies about that baby like the back of their hand. God's unexpected ways. Maybe it's a... Maybe it's a, it's a word to us about how God wants to use us to impact this world. To be agents of restoration and grace and justice and righteousness. Maybe God is less interested in people who are what we might call world changers. And more interested in people like you and me in our everyday lives. I mean, ever so often, God puts his finger on somebody's life and you end up with a with the Desmond Tutu or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. But most of the time, it's, it's just everyday folk like you and me, just living our lives, trying to live in openness to the Spirit so that when people look at us, they think of Jesus. And we work for justice in every way we can. That's why we're doing this initiative for the refugees. But quite frankly, the last time when we collected our offerings, we got about $3,000. And that was awesome. But it's, it's barely a drop in the bucket for what needs to be done. And in some ways you think, is it really worth it? It's worth it because it's something. It's worth it because God is developing in us hearts to care about people who are exploited and manipulated and uprooted. And every single instance is important to God. And everything we do is important to God. I wonder if sometimes we struggle with that because we don't really feel hope. We've just sort of resigned ourselves to the fact that this is the way the world is. It's never going to be different. We know someday is going to come and when that day comes, then then we'll escape this earth and we'll we'll finally get to to be, experience the things that God wants to give us. But now, it seems pretty hopeless. Doesn't feel like we're really accomplishing anything.
Doesn't seem like a baby's accomplishing much either. Doesn't seem like that that stable in Bethlehem really had any made any difference. There's always hope because we're talking about God here. We're talking about the God who cares and loves and created and whose vision is restoration. And Jesus comes the first time to start this rescue operation. And he comes a second time to fulfill it. And in the meantime, you and I live with hope. That through his grace, we can actually be agents that he can use to bring restoration and change and hope to a world of brokenness, pain, loneliness, injustice. So wherever we are, wherever we go, Whoever we rub shoulders with. To live with a spirit of openness. To let Christ use us. It's really the call of God in our lives. And to trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. As he does for Israel as he does for his church through the ages, as he's promised to do now with you and me. Father, we want to thank you for the coming of Christ and for what his coming means for us, for this world. We pray that you'd help us to have hearts that are open to you, that we might see you and work in us in just the everyday moments of life. Our hearts, our lives, our actions would reflect Jesus and the glorious vision of your kingdom. We pray this through Christ. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.